This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 28. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss the latest episodes of the hit series Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the sixth episode of Season 10, Extremists, which is the first part of a three-part series of episodes that are all connected in uh, one one storyline. And joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika of Malta, Montana. Hi, Father. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken from San Diego. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, how's it going? Excellent. So uh, today we're talking uh, extremists. This is uh, episode yeah. is written by Stephen Moffat. Now, usually as the showrunner, Moffat gets he gets the season premiere, uh, the season finale, and the Christmas special, and then he he picks up one episode during the season to do something a little different, a little special. I think last season it was Listen, uh, which was. Uh, all essentially took place in one room in the in the control room of the TARDIS. Um, so he does, you know, ch- kind of pushes the envelope a little bit. And so um, this week he this season he he chose this one, Extremis, the first episode of a three part series that that they're calling online. They're calling the Monks Trilogy, uh, which is must be those weird fellow weird looking fellows uh, who look like a cross between zombies and the Yurikai from uh, the Lord of the Rings. So. Uh, uh, also, as showrunner Moffat revises other people's scripts, so his fingerprints really are on everything. But he doesn't course. do the main writing, like, um, and in particular, he tends to do the series arc stuff. So, like whenever, uh, whenever you see in this season the Doctor at the vault, it's really probably a scene that was written by Stephen Moffat and inserted in somebody else's script. Right, right. Which is yeah, it's it's the way that. Um series script writing works generally is yeah the yeah. the showrunners you, you you have sometimes you have a writing room i don't think they have a writing room with like a stable no. of regular writers but um but the showrunners often kind of go through it and make it fit yeah. so and some, sometimes you'll see a showrunner getting a co-credit on an episode and what that means is the showrunner did something they have union rules for how all this works but what it means is the showrunner did something beyond the normal showrunner level of revising but still wanted the other person to mm-hmm. get credit or like maybe they each wrote half of the episode yeah. or something or you might have you might have inserted a particular scene that advanced the storyline you know so, something like that so um, this this episode, the chatter online so far, the last couple of days, um, has generally been very favorable toward towards this episode. Uh, the the blog at um, Vulture, uh, they do a, a weekly uh, Doctor Who blog. They you know this episode knocked you flat on your back. You know um, you, this, this very ecstatic. What, what is your without getting into too many details? We'll get into that in a second. But just you know, kind of as a starting point, how'd you feel about this episode? Uh, Father Corey, why don't you start? Well, I, you know, I felt it was, I mean, it was a very exciting episode. I think, you know, they, they did, it was one of those episodes where there was, you know, it was constantly moving 
I kind of felt it really didn't get bogged down. I mean, there are a couple of points where, of course, they had to do some exposition, but they kept it moving. You know, they didn't get, you know, the funny part is, you know, for all the, the fact that this very toss book was the center point of the whole story, it really didn't play a lot directly, the book itself. You hear about it, but, you know, they didn't focus on the book as in this object sitting in this vault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, the whole storyline kind of kept moving well. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about a couple of weaknesses in the story, of course. But uh, all in all, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of a just a fun story. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? I thought it was an, I thought it was a nice story. Um, it did not. I mean, we all knew it was going to involve religion in a big way, and so I was a little apprehensive about that, but optimistic. And I was I was pleased that they maintained a basically respectful tone. They had a couple of little things in there that I'm sure we'll talk about, but uh, but they handled the religion subject respectfully, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, the story was an interesting story. It was basically. It involved, and there, you know, there are no original plots. I mean, there's only a certain number of plots. But I'd seen many of the major elements of this story in other contexts before. But it was brought together in a nice way. I like the fact that Nardole got off his one note in this episode. Um, and in general, I enjoyed it. So uh, we should probably right off the bat like, sort of, sort of spoil the ending because it just helps frame the whole story. Which is that the that the whole thing takes place in a computer simulation, except for the very first scene with the doctor at the vault and the very last scene of the doctor at the vault. Apart from, and then apart from the the, the scenes, scenes with Missy, the scenes with Missy, which are uh, in flashbacks. flashbacks, but even those are in the simulation because it's the virtual doctor that's having those flashbacks. I don't think so. I wasn't clear I on think, that. Yeah, I think I, that was the I, real part. No, no. I, I think it, it, it. I mean, those scenes really happened in the real world, right? right. But the, it's the virtual doctor who's having them because there will be key moments where the virtual doctor something happens to him, and then he flashes back to a bit of dialogue that hooks into that. Okay, this, and then he comes okay. Back. I see where you're coming from. Then okay. Yeah, I guess yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it that way but yeah because otherwise the that that whole insertion of the flashbacks doesn't make like why are we inserting that here i mean they they grab bits of that in fact the word extremists i think comes out of that um well yeah which we'll Um, get into but yeah oh no you don't want to talk about what no you go ahead go ahead good uh i just just say we'll talk more about it but go ahead oh okay well, so for people who may not know, the word extremist is a Latin word. It means at the limits, literally. Yep. Um, but it's also a, it has a figurative meaning. Um, if you talk about somebody being in extremis, it means not just at the limits, but at the point of death. Mm-hmm. And so Missy in the flashbacks is at the point of death. And the doctor, the virtual doctor in the Oval Office when he's realized the nature of everything, he's at the point of death too. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more when we get there. Okay. Um, So the other thing about the, the, about this episode is we get a lot of answers. We, you know, that we've been kind of waiting for not everything, but, but we know, we know who's in the vault. We know how they got there. 
<laughs> kind of made that explicit too. I mean, it wasn't yeah. just like a hint of this is no, right. this is who's in there, and this <laughs> is how they got there. I, yes, <laughs> I, I saw. I saw a. Uh, now, this is actually kind of a tradition in master stories where they they'll introduce the master, but not let the audience on to the fact right away. And they've done it in various ways over the course of the years, mm-hmm. where they'll have the master referred to by a pseudonym, like Mister Magister before we see him. And Magister is just the Latin word for master. Um, Or they'll have him take over the body of a character named Tremus, and Tremus is an anagram of master. Or when they first introduced Missy, they would refer to her as Missy, but didn't tell us she's the first female incarnation of the master. And so they have these, but people guessed it immediately anyway. And so they have these kind of transparent, coy introductions of the master. And that's really what they've been doing this season with the vault. Um, You know, with the pop goes the weasel a few episodes Mm -hmm. ago, they were telling us this is who this is. And fans, you know, guessed it. I mean, it was, it wasn't certain it could have been other people. They could have surprised us. But basically, it was another kind of transparent, coy master introduction for yep. us. And I, yep. I saw an interview with the script editor uh, for this season who mentioned that Stephen Moffat didn't want to leave us on the hook too long about who was in the vault. Because otherwise, you know, if we're checking in episode after episode all the way through the season, who's in the vault, who's in the vault, right. it could get kind of boring. So uh, they wanted to give us the reveal on who's in the vault fairly early. We're now at about the halfway point in the season. And now the question with the vault will shift to what did she do to warrant that death penalty? And I, I think that works well because, yeah, there's a lot of times in series where they do that, where they have an overarching secret. And they keep it going and keeping it going and keeping it going. Eventually, you're just like, I'm so sick of this. I don't really care <clears throat> what the secret is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and when know. that happens, when they do reveal the secret, it's usually a letdown because they've built it up too much. And and I, I maybe this is Moffat learning because he's he could be bad at that too. I mean, if you look back at some of the stuff we've talked about where he's done that in an episode or multiple episodes, he can do yeah. that too where he stretches the secret just a little too long. Yeah, or so way I think too long. Yeah. Uh, so I think he's, he did a good job here. So now we'll see how long he takes before he reveals what her crime was <laughs> that finally led to being locked away. You know, um, that he's kind of learning, okay, maybe I need to move this just a little bit faster. <laughs> well, and then the other thing we get uh, here is we, we know why the doctor has, is guarding it. He took an oath. Um, and we know why Nardole is guarding the doctor because he was sent by, by River. Um, and that's the, the other thing. This is Nardole's sort of blossoms in this episode. Um, he gets, yeah. he gets oh, so like much to do. Episode. Yeah. He, yeah, he officially has permission from River to kick the doctor's butt. <laughs> <laughs> so um, only, only authorized person to do that. See, I like that switch, and it shows that, you know, the good actor, uh, how good of an actor Matt Lewis, or uh, Lucas, Lucas is. Yep. Because... You know, he's all goofy and silly, and then he takes off the glasses, and I have permission from your wife, you know, and all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. it's dead serious. And yeah. it's just like, wow, two completely different characters. <laughs> it was it was very interesting that he did that twice in this episode, and it was, he did a very good job of that. So let's, you know, start at the beginning. We don't start where we left off. We get a, you know, uh, you know previously on Doctor Who, we we get that, rem- remember, he's blind. Um, and But we don't start, you know, in the present day. We start in the past. Uh, with the doc, and this is why I had a, I, I I was thinking that um, the flashbacks weren't uh, in the simulation because the first flashback happens before. Uh, yeah, well, uh, the 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 real doctor is having them too. Okay, so we start where we uh, the where 
um, this planet and then a voiceover talking about the problem of death, which is kind of funny. You know, yeah. like, how, how do we, 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 there's over a billion species and we got to figure out how to kill each one of them. Um, and yeah. we don't get a lot of explanation. We, we kind of find out as we go along that there's uh, this organization called the Fatality Index or, or it's an organization or it's a database of some sort. I think it's a database. Um, and this- yeah, I, people have kind of started calling them the Fatality Index, though, online, because we don't re- really get another name for them, but, but they're, they're apparently an order of executioners. Right. They yeah, like just- a group of monks, that, that that's their calling, if you will, is to execute people. Yeah, the, this planet sort of special, their ec- economy revolves around being executioners for all species and all planets. Um, and they, they go through uh, this talk, and then we get to... Um, uh, the way that they introduce it makes it seem at first like it was the doctor who was mm-hmm. about to be executed, which was, I think, intentional, right. of course. Um, of course. Uh, you know, the we, we talk about how um, uh, the technology will stop both hearts, and then Moffat introduces a new part of the, the uh, Gallifreyan physiology. Uh, by three brain stems. Three brain stems. Well, of course. Why not? Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, that... Um, the this device will stop any regeneration ability, the, and their body will be placed in a quantum something chamber for a thousand years. Uh, now, I've seen some people referring online to saying, "Okay, so this happened a thousand years ago, and the doctor's been guarding the vault for a thousand years." But I don't actually think that's what that said. What what they're saying is, um, he he taken takes an oath to guard her for a thousand years, but. He could have transported that vault to 1967, and it's been there for, mm-hmm. as he referred to, 50 years at Bristol, you know, the University of Bristol in, in England. Which I think that's a good, that's actually a good supposition that that's yeah. when he landed on Earth was 67. Right. And, yeah, and, although they, they said he'd been teaching at the university for like 70 years, though, didn't they? Well, 50 or 70. Yeah. I, something I, like that. Yeah, I was kind of going from memory. I thought it was 50. But, but what, however long he's been teaching there... That might have been when he got there, because there's no because if it, if he'd been there a thousand years, then now's the time for the vault to open. So there is no right. question that the vault should open. But now not, there, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Getting back to the the fifty or seventy, I think in the first episode it said that officially there was some like sign or something that said he'd been there for fifty years, but there was a uh, uh, rumors or you know had been said that he'd been there for seventy. It was something like that where both yeah, both dates com- were mentioned. Okay. Yeah, I remember the one in the conversation with Bill where I think she said seventy. Right. The sign. The sign said fifty, but rumors said seventy or something like that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So it was. I can't remember the exact details, but something along that lines. Right. So this this right. there's no sense because some people were saying this blows up all of the doctor's continuity for what he's been doing, and now he, now we've got he's thousands of years, another thousand years of age to him. But I don't think that's actually what was. What was said uh, here at this point in the script? No, it's more. We're we're probably more like a hundred years into this, or you know, seventy or a hundred years, not a not a thousand at this point. Okay, and, and I would be surprised at all if it's going to be stated more explicitly in the coming episodes. Yeah. Right, right. Um, uh, uh, there's a good line here. Uh, Life can be a cunning enemy. <laughs> I, I just uh, Moffat has a way of turning things around and, and kind of uh, tweaking you to with the, with this with the uh, the unpredictable phrasing and, and that sort of thing. So I like that was a a good line. Um, so Missy comes out uh, again. She's sort of she's subdued. She's not 
you know, they don't have Melissa Gomez uh, chewing the scenery like she normally does. She's a lot more subdued. Uh, she she says, oh, the Daleks told me that you've been uh, having some domestic bless on Derillium. And then she seems genuinely sad for the doctor as she somehow, you know, she realizes that something, you know, that en- didn't end well. Or she remembers, mm-hmm. maybe she knew that River uh, dies and that sort of thing. But uh, there's that genuine, there's a moment there between the doctor and the master mm-hmm. in this whole scene. And that's, see, this is one of the reasons why I love Doctor Who is this it's not simply it's not by the numbers you know the master isn't yep. simply the doctor's enemy there's a connection and yeah and and the and the doctor seems to want to help the master despite herself himself you know slash that's that's one thing I, I've always I think the reason why the master is such an endearing uh, enemy is he was never the snidely whiplash bad guy that always was the bad guy you know, there was always some genuineness to him. I mean, even go back to Roger Delgado, you know, the original master. At least my my impression of him, he's never he was always he was never just the the stereotypical black and white bad guy. And of course, they've developed that over years. I think he's more and Missy in particular. He's more human now. And there were, I mean, I I, I don't know. I'd probably phrase it a little differently. I think he was the you know mustache twirling villain on a lot of occasions well i'm not saying he wasn't yeah but they let the they let the other side peek through periodically it was clear that he and the doctor had some kind of connection uh that they'd known each other on gallifrey that they had maybe been close in fact there were there were hints that they were actually brothers and um there's a moment in the fifth doctor's time peter davidson where um where the master is about to die, or apparently die, and he he calls out to the doctor and says, "Won't you have mercy even on your own?" And then he gets cut off, and and fans have filled in the expected next word as brother, um, and they even reference that in the new series where Martha once Martha Jones sees the interaction between the John Sim, John Sims master and David Tennant's doctor and says what is he like your secret brother or something and he says you've been watching too much television um, <laughs> <laughs> and then we have in the Missy era we have Missy explicitly uh, stated on multiple occasions to be the doctor's friend uh, what's her name the the unit aid the uh, that Missy kills refers to the master as to missy as the doctor's friend from gallifrey um the doctor himself when uh we have the confession dial introduced talks to clara about how she is a member of my own species and we you know uh we interact and we had this long-standing relationship that's different than a companion relationship and missy herself in talking to clara about this uh says you see that couple over there with the dog you're the dog implying that the the doctor and I are like the two humans in the couple. Right, right. So, and and I should enter here that um, Michelle Gomez has said that, um, I think I might have mentioned this uh, last week, that this is her, you know, this uh, season is her last season as the master, that she's going to go out with Peter Capaldi, uh, that she can only be Peter Capaldi's uh, master, which is... uh, is, uh, 
admirably loyal, but also sad for the fans because <laughs> I, I think she's fantastic. Um, I think she's fantastic too. Unfortunately, she said that she's left the door open. I saw an interview with her where she said, you know, two or three years down the road, I may, may be missing this and saying, oh, what did I do that for? And she may come back, but that's the current plan. Okay. Right. So uh, we cut away from uh, this long ago on this uh, execution planet. Back to the doctor today, uh, talking to Missy through the vault door uh, for a moment. Then we're back to the execution, and then back to the doctor. Um, and this, and now he gets an email on his uh, sonic sunglasses with the subject line of extremists, which starts downloading, and then cuts to static, and then we have the the show open. And that should have been our clue uh, of mm-hmm. what's coming. That ev- that everything act- after this is <laughs> is essentially. The whatever was downloaded on the email. Um, yep, it's computer simulation most, at that point. Yeah, this is our most Inception-like episode because we've got the three layers going here. We've got the flashbacks, the real doctor, and the virtual doctor. Right, and we keep jumping back and forth between layers. And, and apparently, the flash, the virtual flashbacks. So maybe four layers. Yeah, four layers. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after the open, that we have the doctor standing in a dark lecture hall. Uh, and a cardinal, accompanied by some priests, comes in, uh, and he says he was re- recommended to come based on uh, the recommendation of Pope Benedict the Ninth in 1045. And, I, and as soon as they said that, I thought, "What that guy?" <laughs> uh, yeah. Be, be, so, for Go people ahead. who may not know, yeah. Benedict the Ninth is can, is one of the top candidates for worst pope ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. He lived yes. a thousand years ago. He's the he was a young man. He was the only. He was notoriously immoral, um, and he not he he was he's like the only guy to be pope three times. And part of the reason that he was pope three times is he sold the office, yep. and so um, he's the sort of the ultimate bad boy pope. Yeah. I, I love uh, Catholic, the old Catholic uh, encyclopedia, which you can find online, uh, describes him very uh, gracefully as a disgrace to the chair of Peter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if that Catholic encyclopedia, which is generally very reserved, if it's calling him a disgrace, you know he was not good. Some of his <laughs> near contemporary uh, writers uh, described him in much more colorful terms, um, mm-hmm. accused variously of things like murder and adultery and, and other things. He was 20 years old when he was, elect- when he was elected. Basically, the, it was bought for him through family connections, the seat. Uh, and, and then. Um, There's never been nepotism in Italy. <laughs> no. Uh, and then he, he was deposed. And then came back and then held it for a month and decided he was really sick of it. And he didn't want it back anyway. And so then he sold it to his uncle, who is uh, one of the Gregories. I forget now which one. Uh, and then uh, then he decided he, he wanted it back. And it just it created this giant mess where we had three men at once uh, who are claiming to the throne, the throne of Peter. And, and then the Holy Roman Emperor had to eventually come in and sort the whole thing out. Um, so... Uh, the reason we talk about this is, and why actually I was kind of happy they picked Benedict the Ninth, um, is because at this point the doctor kind of refers to Benedict the Ninth as a as a woman, um, 
Which, if you're gonna, yeah. if you're gonna, if you're gonna slander a, a pope, you might as well be one of the worst ones, as opposed to one yeah. of the good ones. Yeah. They're they're also bringing in an element here of the Pope Joan legend. Yeah. Uh, so, for people who don't know, there was this legend, and it's not true, but there was this legend that there was a Pope John who had an accident one day and it was discovered that Pope John was really a woman who had been disguised as a man this whole time and so this is a kind of this is a this you know historians have checked into this and, and given the time frame this was supposed to happen we know it didn't but there's this kind of legend out there about yeah. there being a woman pope and so they're kind of fusing that into the more historical memory of Benedict the Ninth. You just you, I don't want to get too too much down the the road into that, but since this is an episode that that heavily connects to the Catholic Church, and all three of us are heavily connected to the Catholic Church, and <laughs> in our uh, primary uh, both both as as believers, but also in our work, um, I just want you kind of kind of just th- this whole th- this sort of idea of oh the the Pope was secretly a woman. It, it's I think it's a it's a common tweak on. You know, trying to say that the church is a bit hypocritical um, because it reserves the priesthood um, mm-hmm. to to men, and you know, but oh, you know, over in two thousand years, um, don't you know, some of them have been women and secretly and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a fairly common tweak at religion. We get several of them in this episode, as you said, Jimmy. I mean, most of the, most of it is, it could have been a lot worse, which is not, yeah, yes. which is faint praise, but, but, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, it, they, they did have, they did at least counterbalance, uh, the kind of tweaky, cheeky aspects with some fundamental respect. One of the things that is really nice, then they even tie this into Benedict the ninth, uh, is, uh, a moment where Cardinal Angelo says that, um, one of the things Benedict the Ninth said about the doctor is he is the man that most needs confession. Mm. And given the doctor's past, that's true. And the reply that he allegedly gave also fits the doctor's character. It would take too much time. And so, but there's a there's a, a fundamentally respectful treating mm-hmm. of the reality of morality there and the need the human need for forgiveness, yep. uh, whether. You conceptualize it in Catholic terms with the sacrament of confession or something else. Um, there's a there's a, a human moment there in the writing that treats religion and with with a great deal of respect, and I, I like that. Uh, that was nice. So I could put up with a little ribbing. I mean, I expected yeah. that. Yep. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the other area with the, I found that they were respectful was was basically in the treatment of the Pope. Because what we have here is yeah. Cardinal Angelo introduces, we have this funny gag ongoing where the, the doctor is blind but doesn't want anybody to know, and Nardole has to help him kind of navigate through, you know, yep. things that he should be, obviously should be seeing. He has to kind of help him cover up that he's not seeing it. So the Pope comes in, um, and it's obviously supposed to be, he looks a lot like Pope Francis, and yeah. and, he, and, he, and he's kind of treated sympathetically. Um, he doesn't mm-hmm. have a, a lot to do. He only speaks in Italian, except for yeah, and, one instance. Which, by the way, should have been a clue that this was the simulation, because the TARDIS would have translated. Oh, very good, very good. I caught that. It, second interesting. Uh, I took it as a narrative uh, fun- as a as a narrative device because one of the problems if you if you want to include the Pope in something like this, I mean, you don't want to alienate your audience. 
you know you don't want to go after the pope and be vicious um because there are a lot of a lot of catholics in the doctor who audience who would not take well to a disrespectful treatment of the pope and and so you've got a, a problem as a writer how do you introduce the pope as a character and avoid that well one way is by not having him speak english and so they use cardinal angelo as his surrogate and translator for all the important dialogue so when the pope wants to get a message across it's always cardinal angelo who delivers it so you don't have to form an impression good or bad of the pope himself right. you can just have whatever view you're going to have and he's relatively He's present in the story, but he's relatively detached from it in the sense that he's not on the line as a character. Because you could imagine if he was speaking in English, people would be would be evaluating him as a character and saying, okay, what did he mean by that line? Do I like that? Do I not like that? And they'd have to form more judgments about him. And so I thought this was a clever way of uh, keeping the Pope as a kind of neutral figure in the story so that they could be have him but not get him too much on the line um and also it happens to sink into the real world fact that pope francis doesn't speak english so yes uh, <laughs> very 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 little he speaks yeah. just yeah, yeah. But, but but his, he speaks more english than i speak than i speak spanish i speak no <laughs> spanish so he speak more english really? than i yeah oh, interesting. <laughs> i'm I'm one of the few priests probably in the church, in the United States church today that doesn't speak Spanish, but <laughs> anyways. solamente un poco de español. Yeah. Well, is there a lot of call for uh, for Spanish in uh, Montana? Is there? Not really. Yeah, I was going to say. Probably... Well, the only, only call for, I, sorry, kind of a bad joke, but the only call for Spanish here is tacos and enchiladas. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh Back in the uh, doc doctor's office, uh, the, they've re re retired to the, uh, the office at the uh, university, the Cardinal Angelo and the Pope, um, and they present him with this document that they call Veritas, which is uh, Latin for truth. Um, and they translate that one for us. Yes, yep. they do. They make sure that we understand. Um, and you know, they call it a text older than the church itself, which is kind of, you know, the church The church goes back to Pentecost, so it can't be that much older than the than the. Uh, the church um and they say that the language that it was originally written in apart from the title is lost to us except uh an early sect had uh, managed to translate it but then they all uh once they did they all killed themselves um and, uh, and this so this hooks into a trope that you find in a good bit of horror literature which is the trope of a forbidden book or document that mm -hmm. if you read it has terrible consequences um, either directly or because you go kind of go mad once you read it and there are multiple instances of this uh, about a hundred years ago there was a famous short story collection called the king in yellow uh, in which it talks about a play called the king in yellow and we get little snatches of the script from the king in yellow but in each of the short stories in the collection somebody has read the king in yellow and something terrible happens to them as a result um and that kind of inspired other similar things like in the writings of hp lovecraft uh he invented a, a similar terrible ancient book called the necronomicon mm -hmm. uh which is then been used widely in uh, other people's fiction and in music and in all kinds of things. Um, and he inspired a bunch of other young writers in his circle to create similar 
terrible, evil, horrible old books. And so this is one of the things Doctor Who is now hooking into in this episode. Right. The uh, Necronomicon shows up in Army of Darkness, which is uh, yep. sort of a comic <laughs> horror movie. Uh, but yep. if you if you watched uh, this season of uh, Marvel's Agents of Shield, they have the Darkhold, which is a uh, an alien book that that when read causes you to absorb all kinds of information that makes you mad. Um, or the movie, even like what was it? I didn't. I never, I never saw it. it. Was based on a Japanese movie, um, The Ring. I think it was. Oh if, yeah, yeah. If, it's a videotape. You see, yeah. Watch the videotape. You're going to die in a certain number of days. Right, which is a similar trope. Uh, so yeah, it's so it's it's tying into a this this uh, tropes aren't bad. They're they're they, they in fact they they're sort of a um, a shorthand to help uh, because you recognize it and you understand the the implications of it it helps the story move along faster as opposed to our podcast so i'll i'll, I'll shut up about it but <laughs> let me add one more little thing on that there was also an episode of the twilight zone in the 80s i guess where um someone had come up with it wasn't a document but it was a message that allegedly revealed the truth about everything mm. and if you heard it you went crazy and mm. the the episode ends by it being broadcast over a radio station, uh, and um, and and so uh, you know we have something like that here because eventually Bill and Nardole don't they never read Veritas, but they still learn the essential message, and we watch the effects it has on them. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, so uh, they, this. Document was translated again in the modern time. Uh, I'm not sure how, if the language was lost to us, but they did. Um, and all the new translators committed suicide. Um, and then we have this odd moment where... Except one. What, what's that? Except, except, one. except one. Right. They assumed that they all killed themselves. They lost contact with one of them. Um, and as the uh, the doctor says, don't make assumptions. It makes an ass out of you and me, you and umption. Where he, ma- he mangles the, the old phrase "don't don't assume" and makes an ass out of you and me. So I, I thought I thought that was a very uh, I, as someone who likes puns, I love that that clever mangling of the of a pun. But then we have this as they say. Speak of this, we have these interesting um, flashes of images of crime scenes. Um, I I tried to do the step through the recording to see them. Um, one of them was a front page of an Italian newspaper with the headline: "Inexplicable suicides throughout the country." Urgent investigation into a large number of religious scholars and members of the clergy found dead. Um, but there was another uh, like side story. I don't know if this has any, if it's an Easter egg or anything. <laughs> but it said um, uh, it was a story about a 94-year-old retiree who won an 86 million euro lottery in a ca- in a casino, causing ca- chaos there. my my Italian is not very good, but I I, I kind of got the gist. And his name was Harrison O'Shea. And I just thought, I just thought it was funny. That's that's not someone from Doctor Who past or history, is it, Jimmy? The- not not that I'm aware of. Um, I and I, I I ran across that story. As far as I've been able to determine, it's just an Easter egg for people who are fat who are frame forwarding through the uh, <laughs> people he like put me. It for you, Dom. That's yeah. just for me. Well, I'm gonna. It might be an inside joke. Maybe maybe Moffat or someone in the special effects team knows the Harrison O'Shea, but uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so that's not important then, but it was funny. Um, so the Veritas has a secret that drives uh, all who know it to suicide. And then we have a, a very important and clear misstatement of the church's teaching on suicide. Um, but it's but yeah. it's presented as this profound moment in the story. So it's a very important line. 
Uh, but he says they, the Cardinal says they were all devout believers who took their own lives knowing it would send them to hell. They read the Veritas and chose hell, is what he says. That's yeah. that's not the church's teaching about suicide, right? Uh, F- Father Corey, maybe maybe I'll ask you to to kind of explicate on that as a as our pastoral uh, presence <laughs> on the show. You know, it, it's it's taking. I think it's it's trying to uh, rough over what the church really teaches. Yes, the church does teach. It's it's a grave matter. It's a it's a very very serious thing to take your life. Um. You know, and, and unfortunately, I think there have been people throughout history that have taken that view of, and that if if you uh, if if you take your life, you're going to hell. It's immediate one way ticket. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. And you know, I th- the church has been doing a much better job, I think, in recent years of clarifying that of saying no, it's not a one way ticket. A person can commit a mortal sin by taking their life. They can willingly say, I'm going to take my life in full willingness, in full desire. I'm going to do it basically to spite God. You know, I don't believe God exists and to prove it, I'm just going to take my life. Something like that. I mean, again, this is just an example off the top of my head. What the church says now in, in I, I think, again, in clarification is most people who take their life, they do it, if not everybody who takes their life, they do it usually not in their right mind. You know, they are right. not doing it willingly. They're not saying, I, you know, my life is too bad and I'm willingly going to end my life. But they are in despair. They are, you know, a lot of times they see that this is the only way out. This is the only way to get past whatever this is. Um. So and so th- they're often encumbered by mental illness or other yeah. things that lessen Correct. their will right. and their willingness. And, and just and to get into the you know the old the old teachings of for something to truly be a mortal sin, um, it must be grave matter. Which again, taking your life is. So they were right on that aspect of it. You must know that it is grave matter, and you must do it anyways, deliberately. You know? Deliberately. With deliberation. With deliberate yeah, as intent. Opposed, That's a good way to put a, it, yes. As opposed to under the influence of mental illness. Mental illness and, or and, someone else, yeah, some other's influence or something like that. And and even with a mortal sin, I mean, God forgives, so you can repent and be forgiven. The thing right. about suicide, though, is because you're dead at that point. Correct. It, it, it's been hard for a lot of people looking at that to say, well, we well, couldn't repent afterwards. And so there's kind of been a folk understanding of but, suicide you know, as a, as a one way ticket to hell, but that's not the church's actual right. teaching. And, and you know, to be, you know, the reason why the church has been more clear that it isn't the one way ticket, um, you know, I don't want to get too morbid, but you know, you use the the idea of the priest shooting himself. Well, at that moment, right after he pulls the trigger, he could still repent. You know, we don't know. Um, so that that's that's why the the church has not been. This is it. You know, and, and again, there there have been cases here in the United States in the past. You know, you hear stories of, well, the priest won't do the the uh, the funeral of someone who killed themselves because they're they're in hell anyways. Right. Yeah, that's not. That's a. That's and again, yeah. And again, that's not the teaching, but that is you know that has always that's always kind of the the popular trope, if to use that term, that the popular. Well, the church won't do a. And, and, the church was uh, 
at least again here in the United States, uh, it was discouraged to do funerals for suicides for that reason. Again, for this time. was in the past. For time. Yeah. And again, this was a misunderstanding of what the church taught. There, you know, there, unfortunately, we're human. Those of us in the hierarchy, we're human. <laughs> and even bishops misunderstand what the church teaches at times. You know, um, that's why we have things like um, councils and stuff like that to say, no, really, this is what the church meant. You know, <laughs> um, right. so, you know, so that it, again, I, I what I would argue is it's not that they got it wrong, is that they took it at too high of a level. They didn't get deep enough into what the church really taught about it. Okay. And and uh, there's a dramatic reason for that in the show. I mean, they're presenting a kind of folk on, uh, oversimplification right. of the church's teaching here. But the reason they're doing that is for dramatic purposes, because it's exactly. obviously more dramatic to say these people, when they learned the truth, actually chose hell. I mean, that's a very compelling dramatic yeah. moment even if it's not really what the church teaches but it's it's for dramatic purposes it makes sense and, uh, to that extent and, and you could you can imagine finding out that you know the world that you've lived in your whole life is a lie and that you're really a computer simulation i think that might lead to a little bit of mental illness i don't know <laughs> right right yeah although al- al- although ultimately we get a different explanation for why they're committing suicide it's not because the truth is too horrible right it's something else and we'll talk about that here yep yep so we i, I know we we kind of go went on a, at a little length on that but i thought it was important given that um well this we're the doctor who podcast from the catholic guys <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so this we are episode this so is yeah this, yes exactly this is our this is our uh, our, our wheelhouse um, so, uh, from, from there, uh, the doctor is going to go back to the Vatican, uh, with the Pope and Cardinal Angelo, uh, but of course they have to stop along the way to pick up Bill. So we, we cut to probably the only really humorous scene in the whole, uh, episode. Um, Bill, uh, is bringing a date back to her apartment. And again, we know that Bill, um, is, she's a lesbian. So it's a woman that she brings back. And we have this awkward situation where... Her foster mother doesn't know that Bill is is gay, and so she's, oh, did you bring a man back? Oh, it's just a girl. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm so happy that you two are here. And we're all supposed to laugh knowingly that uh, the mother is so clueless. As, uh, as the mother is going out to find yet another guy. Yes. Yeah. I was I was surprised that, that they had, that they made the choice to have Bill be in the closet with respect to her uh, her stepmother. I, I, I assumed that this was something that her stepmother would have known. But one of the things that they've consistently done with the stepmother is use the wicked stepmother trope. Right. And so they, at every turn, for some reason, have it in for this character and want to make her look unsympathetic. I think we're supposed to assume that the stepmother would be, uh, to use the current vernacular, homophobic and would yeah. react poorly and just be another reason why she's not a good person. I, I agree with right. you, Jimmy. I don't like the way they're treating uh, the, the, the stepmother, foster mother here. Well, again, they're, they're, they're treating her hypocritical, too, because she talked about, you know my rules about men, but then Bill makes a comment about, thing. I'm not getting to know their name because there's so many of them or something <laughs> that, you know. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. So, uh, but, so um, this, the foster mom leaves, and then you have this, the obligatory gag of the Pope coming out of Bill's bedroom and spouting some Italian at her, which I, I got the gist of something about uh, 
being in a place where there's two girls here instead of being at the Vatican where I'm supposed to be, uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, 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 the date, she gets all freaked out at Bill. And why? You know, because uh, she had just got done talking about feeling guilty about, about being on a date with a, another woman. And, and so I, then the Pope comes out. And so you have that, you know, that trope I, about the church. I did like the line about, you know, hear the TARDIS materialization, materialization noise and, oh, it's the pipes. And by the way, I'm going to yell at them. You know, I, sometimes I yell at them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd wondered about this scene because you mentioned it, that it had been excerpted as a preview clip uh, when we talked about the previous episode, Dom. And so yeah. I went online and, and looked at this episode or looked at this, the clip of this episode of this scene. And um, and I was I was actually uh, I, I thought this was funny. I thought it doesn't matter whether you're straight or gay or what. This scene is funny because we've all been tempted. It doesn't matter what your temptation may be. All of us have been tempted. All of us have been at the point of trying to rationalize that temptation where, you know, there's a problem here, but you're. You really want to, and you're at sea, and am I going to feel guilty, and all kinds of stuff. And you're at that vulnerable moment in the temptation process where you haven't yet given into it, but you're you're inclined to, and to suddenly have the Pope walk in on you at that moment, <laughs> no matter who you are and what your temptation is, that is funny. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Yes, and then of course, Bill, as she goes, as the her date storms out, she turns to the priests who she finds standing in her uh, in in her bedroom, and she just says, "You're all going to hell," and she goes into the TARDIS. Yeah. <laughs> um, where and inside, uh, the the doctor is uh, working on some gadget that we eventually find out is going to help him to see uh, at at some cost to his future self. Um, and as you mentioned, Jimmy, the doc, the cardinal offers confession to the doctor. Uh, and says, "You seem like a man with regret in his mind," which cuts us back to Missy's execution, where a uh, a, a hooded and robed priest shows up to talk to the doctor, and, uh, and not to Missy, but to the doctor. Uh, and uh, it turns out it's Nardole sent by River to help him, and um, says something along the lines of, uh, "Goodness is is not is doesn't seek advantage," and uh, but the key element of this is virtue is only virtue. In extremis, I think is what he says uh, yeah. here, and that's where we get this line, uh, the, the title for the for the episode. Um, you have to be at the limits to show true virtue. Yes, mm-hmm. right, uh, and which is not not which is it's actually true. I mean, uh, in in a sense that uh, I don't I don't know that you have to be at your limits, but but when you are at your limits, that's when the true when true character comes out, and if mm-hmm. you're virtuous, when that's when you'll be virtuous. Yeah, when it's most clearly manifested. Yep. Um, so then, uh, to the Vatican, uh, as I, and, and I got to find a a, a a a wallpaper shot of the TARDIS flying over the Vatican to put on uh, my wallpaper, <laughs> my desk, uh, my computer, because that's that that's an awesome shot. Um, and they're inside this, you know, obviously a Baroque or Renaissance building at night. Um, the Pope takes his leave of the. Of the doctor, he gives him a bit a, a bit of a blessing. Um, Nardole uh, confronts the doctor about telling Bill about his blindness, but uh, the doctor c- kind of puts him off, you know. And, and in fact, says that Nardole is. I didn't think about that reason for not uh, telling her, but now that you've t- given it to me, I'm not going to tell her now. That's 
that's even better reason. Um, so at which point Nardole says you're an idiot, and the doctor says everybody knows that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then they 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 we have this portrait of a uh, a sultry looking uh, Pope Benedict the Ninth, uh, this beautiful woman uh, painting that her, she who um, she eventually. Uh, she evidently uh, created this library called the Hereticum, uh, and let's just throw it out right now: there is no such thing in re- in real the real world. There is no library of heretical and forbidden books. But if there was, Harry there Potter is. would be there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, there are the Vatican secret archives, but the thing about the secret archives is they have a much more dramatic name than what they actually are. Um, they're only secret in the sense that you have to apply to get permission to go there. They have their hours posted online, you know. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> well, it's just a private library. Right. The, the, well, the secret archives, the, the word secret user, uh, I'm trying to remember now, it's, it's a particular Latin... Um, yeah. it, it, uh, um, meaning it doesn't mean secret in the same way we mean secret, like right. the CIA's secret uh, secret archives. It means it's, it's private. It's yeah. yeah, it's more like it's just the Vatican private library, but right. you, you don't have to. It, it's not like secret forbidden knowledge in our sense. You just have to get the right library card. Well, no, there's the Vatican Library and then the secret archives. And the, the library yeah. is is a sort of an academic library. You have to go there. In fact, they're putting them online. Uh, which yeah. you know would be nice. Uh, you know, you can go to your computer and look at the images. But the secret archives generally hold a lot of it is mundane, but some of it is things like um, so there it, are some like diplomatic treaties and yeah. documents that went back and forth in the Middle Ages. But they they still open those to like scholars, yeah, to go who are like historians and they're researching what happened in a particular period of history. But also, like if a if a prominent person gets an annulment, like a king or you know, like a, a Catholic king or prince or somebody or a queen, um, the records of that would be in the archive, and th- and those are private. I mean, that's the, yeah. the, the 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 proceedings, and so they would they would keep them there. So uh, that's not what that is. This is there used to be something called the Index of Forbidden Books, uh, which also wasn't a library. It was a right. do not read list. Yes, and uh, and it had a lot of things on it that uh, were considered by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, to be injurious to people's faith if they read it. Uh, but even that went away, I think, in the 50s, I think. 60s. 60s. It, was, it was abolished in the 60s. And even then, uh, the Index of Forbidden Books, they weren't absolutely forbidden. It was just like, if you're an ordinary person with an ordinary layman's level of knowledge of the faith, this could be disturbing to you, so you know, stay away from it. Right. But if you're someone who is, say, a Catholic apologist, like I am, who needs to interact with non-Catholic views, then by all means, you need to understand these things, right. you know, what's, what's being fu- said by critics of the church. What's funny is uh, the seminary I went to, the, the, the priest school, if you want to call it that, for those who don't know what a seminary is, um, that I went to in Chicago area, actually had a locked area of the of the library that it's not locked anymore it's open but it was gated it looked like this you know not kind of out in the <laughs> middle of the floor but it was kind of a corner of one of the floors that was locked and that's where the forbidden books were kept <laughs> so the seminary had them so people could read them and understand what they were you know what why they were errors yeah. but they didn't want just anybody walking in you no. know regardless right. of their level of faith formation you're you're, you're, and- you're First year college seminarian should not be reading these, but once you're, you know, high theology level and professors and so on, they had access to it. Yeah. And that's essentially what we have here with the hereticum. It's, you know, presumably these are documents. I mean, as the name suggests, 
you know, this is like a library of heretical books. And so, you know, the church would want to keep these and have them available for people who need to research them, but not wanting them in just general distribution. Right. Um, and of course, they show it has tens of thousands of books because, you know, the church is so scared of of the text, you know, way finer than you would expect. Yes, uh, well, I, I love the I love the the secret five story massive <laughs> library in the middle of the Vatican. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess that the the entire if you put it got all the t- volumes of the Index of Forbidden Books, it would probably fit on a shelf. Uh, like uh, like I said, the the, the section yeah. at at Mundelein Seminary was, I've seen closets bigger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I want to give a plug here to a friend of mine. She has an Etsy store, and she has these stamps that you can get uh, to put in your... If you happen to have the uh, heretical books on your shelf, you don't want people to misunderstand why they're there. It's a stamp you can put in onto the title page, and it says, Heretical Nonsense for Research Purposes Only. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so if a friend of mine has I mean I'll, I'll see if I can find a link to them uh, and put them in the show notes but uh, I could have used that when I was in, uh, getting a theology degree because I had a few uh, mm. you know nonsense books uh, when I was taking apologetics um, <laughs> so they're in the uh, the hereticum and uh, they uh, we have this Harry Potter reference uh, and the you know, Bill says oh look Harry Potter and the doctor says watch your mouth um uh, the Cardinal says, you know, stay close to me. The layout is designed to confuse the uninitiated. And then the doctor quips back, kind of like religion, <laughs> which is, uh, uh, you know, another another humorous dig. Uh, you know, I, I have to admit, that is funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, there's also a kind of another aspect to that, because, okay, so once you're initiated, you understand the layout. And so yeah, you could understand this if you wanted. Well, yeah, I w- exactly. I would say the TARDIS is the same way, right? <laughs> Yep, I mean, yeah. they, they don't get lost in the TARDIS uh, because it, it's the you, unless you're initiated, you 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 can't understand it. Um, so back to, we we flash back to Missy again, um, and we find out that the Doctor, uh, well, you know, he's about to pull the lever, uh, and Missy sort of beg begs him, not just sort of, she begs him, you know, to 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 spare her life. I'll be good. Teach me to be good. And he says, yes. without without hope, without witness, without reward. Um, and it seems sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, and that's, so that's what he's probing there is, are you really interested in being good? Because being good isn't a matter of just saving your life in a desperate situation. Being good is a matter of being willing to be good regardless of the circumstances, without hope, without whatever, without reward. And, that, and then, I mean, in a way, what we're seeing here is, is Missy an extremist. You know, she's at the point of yep. death. Without hope, uh, is she going to be virtuous? Uh, and that's really the question. And and maybe perhaps this is the ultimate question that Moffat is setting up for the Doctor for the for this season, and maybe for Missy as well. Um, it'll be interesting. Um, so he he messed with the execution device, of course, because uh, the Doctor's not going to kill Missy, um, and throws the switch, and she you know sparks fly everywhere, and she collapses to the ground. Um, and then we we flash back to the the library, um, and the doctor and and Cardinal Angelo are having this back and forth. You know, they they see the cage that holds the you know the very worst of the forbidden books. You know, truth in the heart of heresy, and death in the heart of truth. And Nardole with his line, "You'd be wizard at writing Christmas crackers, you two. 
<laughs> for for um, uh, for Americans, yeah. a Christmas cracker is a kind of toy that British people use at Christmas. You pull it apart, and it makes a banging noise. And um, I guess they have little fortune cookie messages in them or something. Yeah, I, I'd almost say it's like if you would translate this to to Americanism, yeah, you you guys would be great at writing Christmas cards. Uh, that that might yep. have been uh, the same thing. Um, and then this light appears off from one of the uh, the the, cor- the corner around the corner. Um, and the doctor, the doctor can't see it, and so Nardo goes, "Oh, a light about ten feet in front of us, lighting up the way around yeah. the corner." Um, <laughs> and the cardinal goes to investigate and gets grabbed by a skeletal hand. Um, why? That's the thing I'm kind of wondering. What? Why did uh, these creatures, um, who are in the service of of the person running the simulation? I'm trying. To, I couldn't under, couldn't figure out why they grabbed the cardinal at this point. Yeah. The um, so this is, I think, a writing. I think this is a plot hole. Uh, I can come up with a rationalization for it. I mean, we obviously need interaction with the monsters in the episode, so that's really mm-hmm. what's happening here. We need right. to build the tension so the cardinal gets grabbed. But in terms of why would this happen for an in-story, you know, on an in-story level, um, I would suppose that the uh, the monks who are running the simulation have noticed that some of the simulants have begun to figure this out right. and that Veritas has been translated and is spreading and you're having these people learning about it and doing things that are starting to interfere with their simulation and so they're investigating that. But they don't want to come in full bore because they want to keep the simulation going so they're kind of doing some mm-hmm. kind of tentative initial penetrations to investigate and the cardinal interferes with that right can, can i bring well, up and, and, oh go ahead father no i'm sorry go ahead i was just going to bring up the giant plot hole in this whole story okay Why, if this is a simulation and that veritas uh interrupts the simulation and and destroys the the whole premise of the experiment why is it there in the first place like why does it exist if it's a basically yeah. a ticking time bomb in your simulation uh, and, and how did it how did it exist more than two thousand years ago when the doctor has very recent memories? Right. Of, you know, because this Veritas couldn't exist in the real world because the real world is not a simulation. So it has mm-hmm. to exist only in the simulation. But it's supposed to be this ancient. I mean, that makes no sense. Right. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> this is a big plot hole. Yeah. Um, the one thing I was going to mention about the, the Cardinal is, you know, the, the, what I was watching it where he was grabbed is because he had seen the portal. You're, right. You're not supposed to know and, the portals exist. And he's investigating the portal. and so He's trying forth. to find it again. Yeah. Okay. Someone opened the door too quickly before they, before they had <laughs> walked past yep. it. Um, so, okay. That, that, that part makes sense. Um, so, uh, we, let's see, uh, just lost my place, but, um, Mark these things. They meet the translator. They do meet the translator. He's uh, gone bonkers in the cage. He's been living there. Um, he he says, "I sent it." Uh, so the, it's a priest who's standing there with a gun in his hand and kind of babbling about having sent it, and then runs off, um, leaving behind his laptop. So yeah, uh, yes. Well, uh, he he has um, he left behind his laptop, and he sent the translation of Veritas to. CERN, which is the Swiss um, particle physics laboratory where the Large Hadron Collider is, um, uh, we get another one of these tropes of like religion versus science, where it, um, 
when do a bunch of scientists ask for prayers? Particle physicists and, and priests. What could scare them both? I'm like, well, there are priests who are particle physicists. <laughs> it's not like yeah. it's not like that. And there, there are particle physicists who are priests. Right. And oh, and, and devout believers, uh, Catholics, yeah. devout believers. Uh, science and religion are not opposed, folks. They're they're in, in union. Uh, they they yeah. And, and having said that, it is kind of nice to see at least, even though they're assuming, and and there's there's you know a substantial amount of truth in this that you know there are a lot of scientists who aren't believers, there are a lot of believers who aren't scientists. Yeah, there is overlap, um, but there's also been historic tension here um, in the last few centuries, and uh, and it's nice to see the series kind of putting them on the same side, yep. right? Uh, where they recognize. Both religion and science are perceiving something here that's a scary truth that they can both agree on. Yep. That's a good point. That it's this is yeah that whatever Veritas is, it transcends that perceived divide between religion and science. Um, so the doctor sends uh, Bill and Nardole to go investigate the the priest who's obviously dead now. He knows that the priest is dead, but he's trying to get rid of them so he can use the gadget without them seeing him use it. Um, and it's it's a, you have this very funny moment. Like, so the doctor tells Nardole to, uh, you know, it, just in case the priest isn't dead and tries to shoot them, Nardole should walk in front of Bill to presumably <laughs> take any bullets. Um, this is a great moment. Yeah, Bill hates yep. that like the, 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 that Nardole is trying to make her walk behind him. Um, and then, well, I like the I like the way he did it too. It was kind of like that 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 and pushes her back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 she's she instantly starts with what the audience expects, which is a feminist trope. You know, it's like yeah. you're not your man's not going to walk in front of me to protect me. I'm a bold modern woman that can take a bullet in the chest like anybody. <laughs> and um, and so she starts to have that reaction, and then Nardole does this speech based on, look, I'm the only person authorized to kick the doctor's butt, <laughs> and um, and and. And he does it so convincingly. She says, "Okay, you're, you're, you're a total bad boy." And he says, "Like, ain't no doubt about it." Yeah. <laughs> she goes, "Oh, so you're secretly a bad, bad at you know what?" And he goes, "It ain't a secret, honey." Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> or uh, baby doll. <laughs> baby doll. Baby doll. That's right. <laughs> Which is such a great line from uh, from him. And then immediately squeals in in fear at seeing the uh, the gun in, on the ground. Which was a a, a nice little uh, a moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then they, the they, interaction between those two characters in this moment is just great. I yes, love that. yep, yep. Uh, and then they see a, por uh, a portal open in front of them, and we cut back to the doctor, um, who's using this device, and now sees sort of dimly and darkly and indistinctly um, as it's trying to, uh, um, uh, you know, help him see uh, the. He mistakes these, um, uh, like I said before, um, these. Monks that are across between the Yurikai and zombies, um, that uh, he mistakes them for Cardinal Angelo. Um, but for some reason, he's explaining at this point that he's blind to Cardinal Angelo. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why. Again, it, because we need to have him exp expositioning at this point um, to the to Cardinal Angelo. Uh, he thinks. Um, and you are then, about to. We are about to, I mean, he's about to get his vision back, and he right. needs help in the transition moment. Um, and so he may feel more secure in talking to a stranger about his blindness 
than an ally because what Nardol says earlier is you're not telling Bill because if you told Bill it would feel real. Right. But it maybe it doesn't feel so real for him to tell a stranger, especially if he's about to get it back temporarily. Well, and it's interesting with, with that Nardole had said because it would make it real, given that they are in a simulation and it isn't real. I just kind of find, yeah. I, th- I think that's probably just a a little uh, rhetorical flourish by uh, Moffat at that point. Um, so we have this we, we're, at this point in the story, we, we begin jumping from place to place uh, from flashback to the doctor to bill and nardole so i I, we're gonna have to jump around a bit with them because so we jump back to missy um she tells him she's his friend and he throws this is actually where he throws the lever um i I, kind of misspoke earlier um but and that and then she utters without reward and without hope is the fact i'm your friend yes yeah and then uh the doctor then makes an oath to guard her body for 1000 years um and then Boom! Back to Missy and Ardol. Uh, they they come out of a room at the Pentagon um, where they have a, a little funny interaction, and then back into this room of portals, uh, which is this white room and these uh, glowing lights. Uh, and they go through another one of the portals, and they're in CERN. Uh, the the, uh, the these I, I forget what the it's it's a it's a I think it's a French acronym, but anyway, uh, but the scientific uh, laboratory. Um, and then, boom, back to the doctor, uh, who has this blurry vision of the monk, and he's telling him how he's borrowed. I think this is a significant related to re- the regeneration, eventual regeneration. I think this will have some sort of bearing uh, later in the season, where he says, for a few minutes of eyesight, he's traded some future cost. Uh, you know, maybe he'll, when he regenerates next time, he'll be blind, or maybe he won't regenerate at all. Um so we have but of that. Of course, this is this is in the simulation, though. This isn't the real doctor doing this, right? That's true. True, but the real doctor is still blind. So I'm Correct. I'm wondering whether what whatever he does, if if in fact he will do something that will try to bring back his sight, that will still cost him in the future. Um, so this they've that. done this they've done this time and time again where he's had to do something and it's supposedly stolen a. A regeneration or some of his life energy regeneration life energy or you know yeah. this this is something that's that's been done on occasion within doctor who yeah regeneration is a bit like uh uh guns in the schwarzenegger movies they they never you know you you seem like they should be running out of bullets right now but but it's a never-ending uh ammunition clip oh well, they did do the whole whole thing at the with uh matt smith's yeah. And, and his regeneration, where the Time Lords granted him a whole new yeah. set of regeneration through they, the crack. He's reloaded. <laughs> yep. So uh, then, the, of course, the Doctor asks to be strapped into this chair. Uh, evidently, um, you strap into the chair to read the book, but I'm not sure actually how the person strapped in the chair flips the pages while they're reading. I'm not sure how that's supposed to work. I, was I think c- your hands are free. It's just you're not allowed to leave. Well, there was straps. The, the, his arms were being strapped down. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. It was like well, a classic. Someone must do it for you. Yes. Yep. Presumably not reading upside down. Um, and apparently it's a good book for reading Moby Dick. A good chair for reading Moby Dick. <laughs> yes, yeah, I loved, I, I, loved, I loved his line about that. It's like, get to the whale already. Because Moby Dick is famous for being a novel filled with digressions about nautical techniques and how to be a sailor and stuff. Right. <laughs> so uh, he, um, he, asked me, the, the, he asked me strapped in, um, and then uh, we're back to CERN, I think, at this point. Um, 
where Bill and Nardole, they realize the, the truth of Veritas, the, the CERN guys, um, they, they claim that they're, just, they're saving the world by destroying themselves because they've realized that this isn't a real world. Um, uh, late, later on, they, they, they recite random numbers that, that turn out aren't random. They have, you know, he has Bill and Nardole, you know, cause think of a random number and say it together and they say it together and they say another one and another one. And then finally, everyone's all saying the random numbers together. Um, uh, and it's, we actually, it's a, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say it. Eventually we get this explanation that, um, well, computers are actually, aren't, aren't very good random number generators. And that's why we have this flaw in the simulation that lets smart people figure it out. But I'm, right. but is- I'm sitting there thinking, that's not true. Actually, computers are very good random number generators. Well, well yes and no. Yes and no. Um, <laughs> yeah. The this computers is- can do random numbers, but they are it is a random number generator and it's basically a list of numbers. Now, modern computers have done a lot better than old ones. You know, example was Pac-Man, the video game Pac-Man. There were patterns you could learn because the ghost would follow certain trails based on the random number generation. So you could learn the pattern of the ghosts and you can see the ghosts do a certain thing and realize, okay, they're on this part of the random number generation. So I can go this way and do this and that and, and get away from them. Well, then it's not As, a random number generation, is it? I mean, it sort of uh, generates a random pattern that follows a pattern. Right. Computers cannot do an actual random number, which right. is completely, totally random. There are patterns within computers. Right. Modern computers, their, their tables for random number generation are much, much, much more complex than they used to be. But it's still not really random. Hmm. Yeah, th- th- there's, and this is, it's actually a very interesting question. Um, and if you want to read a very interesting book about randomness, there is a book on the mathematics of randomness called The Drunkard's Walk. Um, and and they go into some of this because there are different ways of conceptualizing randomness. And what we're generally looking for is something that humans cannot predict. But, and so there, as Father Corey says, in a, in a modern computer, there is an algorithm that generates a, a number in a way that humans generally cannot predict. It's not really random. It's just unpredictable from a human perspective. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, what the doctor says is true. Um, also, I think it makes from a, for a very creepy moment where they all start doing this. Having said that, I think you're right, Dom, that this explanation doesn't really work because if they obviously have all kinds of subroutines in the simulation that are generating incredibly fine details independently of each other. So Nardal, the details of his body don't look like the details of Bill's body and don't look like the details of the scientist's body. You've got multiple independent um, uh, subroutines running. And given that, multiple independent subroutines could access the random number algorithm and they'd all come up with a different number because Correct. they're accessing it individually. See, uh, yeah, and it, that's very true because on a, a when you program, <clears throat> I did some programming before I was a priest. Um, every time a pro, the program calls a random number, it picks the next one or, you know, it does the algorithm. Yeah. So you get the next random number. So each one of those people would be calling this random number generator and they would be getting different random numbers, not exactly. the same one. Mm. It's not just a list of numbers. Like, right. like Jimmy said, it is an algorithm based on lists of numbers and so on. I mean, there's many different variables, you know, some random number generators can pull from the time on your computer's clock 
down to milliseconds. Some can pull on whatever, you know, so, whatever variables right. they want to use. Well, we, what we have is a simulation that is so detailed that it is simulating the entire history of the planet Earth down to individual people. Uh, Eyelash. Right, right, and all seven, you know, all seven, eight billion people, everything, uh, every aspect of the planet. Um, you'd think the random number generator would, would like you say, would generate random numbers uh, exactly. for each person. So, is it a flaw that was introduced into the system as sort of a backdoor uh, designed to kind of I don't know to if if. I, I if certain people got to a certain point of a knowledge that it would kick them out of the system? I, I think it's just bad writing. They need a way for the characters in the story to prove that they're in a simulation and this yep. is a creepy way of doing it. And so that's why they went for it. Okay. So um, we're, so what we have now is um, the do we're back to the doctor. Um, he sees the he, he has escaped from the, the, the creepy monks. He saw enough of them to realize that it's not actually Cardinal Angelo. Uh, <laughs> it's the, the creepy monks. And takes off. They have the Ferritas uh, that they they seem to be intent on taking back. Um, they get the book. The yes. book. Yep. Right. Finally, uh, after 2,000 years in the simulation of and everyone having seen it. I, again, I'm not really sure like what's going on there. But the doctor grabbed the translation on the laptop and is desperately trying to read it, uh, all he sees is the subtitle, which is A Test of Shadows. Um, but just as the, the crazy monks are about to capture him, a portal opens for him. Why? <laughs> like, is... Yeah. Why is the, 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 the person, let's say, running the simulation, it seems like they're trying to capture him, but then give him an, op an open door that takes him to... Um, eventually to the white house uh, i was i was kind of lost here and I, I didn't know if anybody else was but i kept kind of like what's why is this happening this way i don't know that they explained it but in the when we get the final confrontation between the doctor and the monk in the oval office the monk turns off the bill simulation and then turns to the doctor and the doctor is saying, well, why don't you just turn me off too? And apparently the simulation has identified, the monks have identified the doctor as a particular threat, uh, which of course he is. And they say, no, we're going to keep you running because you're going to suffer because that's going to give us more information. And so it may be that they're wanting to uh, that they're wanting to get more information about the doctor, and that's why they interfere with with him in particular. That, at least that's the right. best I could do with it. Yeah, and it's it's not it's I don't think it's clear that these aliens are the ones, like you said, the one running the simulation. Was it are these aliens just the caretaker, kind of like the um, the the computer program on the Matrix? You know, Hugo Weaving's right. character in the Matrix. Um, is it something like that, or are they the actual? programmers the actual operators of the right simulation right. yes thank you for bringing up another movie that i didn't understand the ending of either <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i challenge anyone to know what uh the architect was doing anyway that's a whole nother podcast yep. uh, <laughs> the first movie was great the other two forget them <laughs> <laughs> exactly um so the back back in the portal room kind of step back a second uh, nardol and um bill end up back there, and Nardole realizes the truth, that um, 
you know, he realizes that these projectors are basically creating the Star Trek holodeck, um, and everything is a computer simulated hologram. And so to test this, he kind of steps out of range of the portal and dissolves his program dissolves. Uh, and so Bill follows the trail of blood that, which a doctor apparently got injured, um, to the white house where the president is dead and the doctor is sitting at the resolute desk. Um, Thank you. The president does not look like Donald Trump. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> Which, well, especially given that uh, uh, the, time, the time yeah. frame that this was filmed probably last summer, I think, might have been before Trump was elected. So uh, that's yeah. that's thank God for small favors. Um, so uh, plus, it's a it's bad form to show to make the death of a real world person a little too yeah boring. Yeah, to be fair, he's just kind of a generic older white male. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's really not too much descript, you know, anything you could point to him and say, yeah, this is a particular president or particular person they're identifying. So we have president, right? And so we have the doctor explain to Bill that kind of what's going on: this an alien life form of immense power and sophistication, running a holographic simulation of Earth's history with every person alive on the surface. Uh, it's a practice Earth to assess the abilities of the resident population, especially the ones smart enough to realize that they're simulations in a great big computer game, and the people who commit suicide are deleting themselves from the game to escape the constant um, dying, I guess, the, 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 the being used by the, the, this life form and, to, and, to do the simulation. This, this hooks into what the CERN scientists said, is we're, we're, they're about to blow themselves up because we're going to save the world. This is not the world. We're going to save the real world by messing up the simulation. Right. right. That's the real goal of the suicide. It's not people trying to send themselves to hell or something like that. They're they're dele- they're messing with the simulation to interfere with the invasion plans. Right. Exactly. Um, and the, the the monk comes and dissolves Bill and speaks with. Um, now, this is a very interesting thing, and some people have speculated something that you brought up last week, Jimmy, which is uh, the monks speak by opening their mouth and words coming out. The jaw doesn't move, which is what you right. said the Mondasian Cybermen were like. Correct. Uh, and so some have speculated that these creatures are the, these, the Mondasian Cybermen in some form. With, yeah, they could be. They could be Cybermen without the external uh, costume. Um, so you can see their kind of deteriorating face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an interesting possibility, and if so, it hooks into the science and religion theme because normally we encounter the Cybermen as these technological in these technological trappings, yep. but here they're in religious trappings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. so. We'll we'll have to see. We'll have a couple more episodes where that will that's going to play out. Um, it's uh, the the. The creature running the the program, speaking through one of these monks, uh, says, "We have killed you many times," um, and then in in kind of triumphantly, you know, you're not real, and and the the simulation doctor says, uh, you, "You don't have to be real to be the doctor, as long as you never give up and trick the bad guys into their own traps." And explains <laughs> how he's been using the sonic sunglasses because they they reproduce them so well that he's been using them to record all of his memories. Uh, um, of the events of the past few, several hours and is now emailing them to himself in the real world. See, uh, 
You know, this again, for me as a computer guy, again, you know, the random number generator is one of them. And then this kind of hit me again. It's like, really, they didn't have a firewall that could keep this from getting out? I mean, or how how does the virtual doctor know what port to send the message through so it'll get to the real world? I mean, and there's there's a simple thing. Why, Why did these aliens hook the computer up to the real world internet anyways? Yeah. Right. Or, or if not the real world internet, the Doctor Who equivalent of that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess there's sonic sunglasses net or something. Yeah, maybe. The, I mean, again, maybe he's saying that the uh, sonic sunglasses have been reproduced so faithfully that they connect to their real world equivalent. Just they actually like cause the computer to send the message. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what struck me at this moment is I've seen this exact scene before in science fiction television because if you watch the fourth season finale of Babylon 5, the deconstruction of falling stars, there is a computer simulation with our main characters and they're being run by people who are about to mount, mount a surprise invasion. And security chief Michael Garibaldi, the simulation, realizes what's happening, records the relevant information, surreptitiously emails it to the other side to alert them of the sneak invasion. Mm -hmm. And so it's like I've been here at this exact moment before. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but that this is what happens in the Matrix too, right? That he sends a message forward to the next running of the simulation, something like that. Uh, that I have. I've only seen Matrix one. I skipped the other two. Yeah, I I I watched I, them, but I'm I don't trying to remember, remember that. Yeah, that whole thing of, I don't know. But but, but <laughs> I you're didn't right. Understand the ending either. You're right, Jimmy. This does actually happen uh, in, in more than once. Uh, I, I'm in fact, I'm almost certain it's happened at least once in Star Trek. But if it's happened once in Star Trek, it's happened at least three or four times. <laughs> yep. Um, well, yeah. How many hologram episodes do they have? You know, oh. where that that was a whole that was the whole point of the plot. You know, right. So yeah, they, they, they do have that Moriarty episode where Moriarty in the holodeck tricks them into thinking they're on the Enterprise when he, it's, they're still on the holodeck and so right. forth. Right, exactly. Um, so then we um, we have back to the real Doctor um, who, uh, you know, outside the simulation, the Doctor confirms with Bill that she's real. He, you know, he, he contacts her um, and encourages her to... Uh, to uh, to go on a date with Penny, even though she's not on it uh, on the date now, um, because we're going to have work to do is is essentially what he says. So you might as well you know have fun now because you're not going to have time for it later. Uh, and then talks to Missy through the door, and then we flash back to uh, to Missy, uh, the, the execution of Missy, where it's revealed that she's still alive. In this great moment where they, they you know these guys go to pick her up and say, like, hey, "Can can a girl get a nap here?" <laughs> which is a, a funny thing and, the, the, and then we have this classic Doctor Who mo- uh, moment where the, do- the executioners they threaten the doctor uh, until he tells them to uh, look up his record of kills uh, which sends them all scurrying for their lives uh, and, uh, and then uh, back to the vault where the doctor says um, you know, he, he's talking to Missy on the other side something is coming and he's blind and he can't save the world when he's lost in the dark, um, and uh, and then that's then we we uh, we cut to the end of the episode. Um, any speculation on the identity of this alien life form running the simulation? Because I have a feeling this is connected to the return of um, the Harold Saxon actor who uh, played the master before John, John Sims. John Sims. I have a feeling it's connected to him. 
Um, I mean, this is a pretty big bad guy, and and if they're bringing back a previous master, that would be a pretty big bad guy. What do you think? It, it would, but I'm suspecting we're going to see him later in the series because Missy is the central um, story arc this time. Why? Yeah. Who's in the vault? It's Missy. Why is she in the vault? What happened that led to this? And then, and obviously, if the, if she's the season arc then she's going to be paid off at the end in the final episode. Okay. And and that, to me, would be the more natural time to introduce the John Sims character. Also, since we know the Cybermen are going to be involved at the end, too, mm-hmm. to whom Misty also has a connection, um, they could... They they could, on your intriguing theory, Dom, uh, they could give us a little bit with the monks right now and then tie them in to the Cybermen at the end as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, uh, before we, like, so I have a couple of things I want to do, uh, you know, as we end the, the, sh- the, the, uh, this week's recording, but, uh, overall thoughts on, um, on extremists, uh, what do you, what do you think, uh, Jimmy, uh, why don't you go first? What's your overall impression? I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it had some, some obvious plot holes in what's sometimes called fridge logic. It's the stuff you realize when you're opening the refrigerator later and it's like, what? That didn't work. <laughs> um, most notably, how does Veritas exist in this thing? Yeah. Uh, because it, it's, if it's 2,000 years old, but the simulation is running details that are totally current to the real world, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but I thought it was an enjoyable episode. I enjoyed the juxtaposition of different viewpoints uh, without... Oops. Uh-oh. I think we lost Jimmy. Yeah, he just froze. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, are you there? I'm here. Are you getting me? Yes, we you are. Fro- so, yeah, you froze for okay. me. Your, your okay, program is freezing. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm glitching. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed it overall. I enjoyed the juxtaposition of the different viewpoints without getting hostile about it. Um, because you do have some jibing going on between our regular cast and the figures from the church. But fundamentally, they treat each other with respect. And, yep. and you know, the church people clearly respect the doctor and his companions. Fundamentally, the doctor ends up res- and his companions end up, you know, working with the church and treating them with respect. And, and they, they are able to work productively together yep. to solve this problem. And I like that. Good. Uh, Father Corey? Yeah, I, I I really pretty much agree with Jimmy. I did, like I said, I enjoyed the episode. There, you know, those those uh, plot holes kind of took me out of it a little bit. There again, that that last part with the doctor emailing himself, just like, uh, yeah. I don't know about that. But um, no, it was it was it was probably one of the better episodes of the season. That's for sure. Yep, I agree. I'm I'm with you on that. Um, so next week is we the second part of this. Uh, three-part series it's called uh pyramid at the end of the world which it sounds like a lot like a douglas adams title to me um okay. i have <laughs> i have the uh, sound of the trailer here I, uh, i'm gonna play did you have something you wanted to, to add first well, I, was gonna, I was gonna say because there's the episode pyramid of mars from the Tom oh, Baker I era that. yeah <laughs> also I douglas that. adams douglas adams wrote for doctor who yeah. Right, 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 right. That's right. Uh, so let's listen to the sound of the trailer, and uh, then we can come back and we have a... I just want to do, a, a, as a wrap-up, a little bit of a halfway through the season recap, just sort of our impressions of how things are going. But uh, first, here's the sound of next week's trailer. 
tell me what you see. It's a 5,000 year old pyramid. One little problem. It wasn't there yesterday. Those creatures in that pyramid, they have studied you and they have chosen this exact moment and this exact place. What's wrong with the doctor? I lied. I've been blind since Chasm Forge. Coordinate your attacks. They did not come here in peace. We will take this planet and its people. Life on Earth will cease by humanity's own land. So that's the uh, trailer for next week's episode. Uh, I, I had one thing I wanted to mention. I didn't bring up. I love the music in this uh, this episode. Um, very um, James Bondian. Very spy. Uh, thriller sort of thing um it kept the action going i, I really enjoyed that um because I, I liked the music in that trailer it reminded me of it um so that's next week so so i wanted to talk about um you know, we're halfway through the final season for moffat and capaldi uh, how do we think it's going you know what do you think so far of bill the doctor the stories they're telling if it's all right i want to kind of start with my impression i, 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 I just mm-hmm. I feel like this season is sort of okay compared to the other seasons and even to the other Capaldi seasons. Um, it's missing something, and my theory is it has to do with Bill. And and I feel bad saying that because I like I like her fine, but there's a kind of a spark missing in her. Um, the the last three companions, Clara, Amy, and Donna, all brought a certain fire to their adventuring and excitement that you know they're going to drop everything and run off with the doctor in fact even clara had a uh, a storyline where she was on a date with danny pink when the doctor shows up and for her it was a how can i ditch danny just long enough so we can get the tardis and go and be back before he knows we're gone uh whereas in this one it's bill is sort of at times it feels like her old granddad has asked her to go with him to the park and she feels obligated to go with him. There's none of that zeal for the unknown that was promised so much the first time they met. And so I feel like that's kind of made this season feel a little lackluster. Um, uh, so how do you guys feel the season's going? And what do you think of my assessment of Bill as a companion there? Thinking. <laughs> no, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I can agree with you. I mean, I, I like Bill just because she's not the trying to one up doctor, the doctor like we saw with with Clara and uh, with the pawns. Um, but it's yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it does seem like they're going to try to take it out on a on a big bang like like Moffat is saying, you know what, I'm going to build this up to the biggest climax of the time i've been the, the showrunner for doctor who and we have this big exciting finale and we're done but of course because they've been building it up so slowly it does seem um a little less exciting as we've had in the past now i mean we did talk earlier about how at least they did the reveal with missy much much earlier than moffat normally would have done um so I, I think that's good. So far, I've enjoyed the season, but you know, I'm, I'm admittedly I don't get as in depth as others might. Um, let's put it this way: this season has been less cringe-worthy, in my opinion, than some others have been in the past. Because there have been, you know, but of course, we still got you know what six episodes left. I can think it's a twelve-episode season. Um, so 
there could be plenty of cringe moments coming up, but I think it's been less cringeworthy that definitely is a season than we've had in the past. There have been some pretty bad stinkers um, that Moffat has pulled out in the past. Well, I, I and I do want to emphasize, I, I like this season and I like Bill. Um, and I, I guess uh, it's, and I like these episodes fine. Um, it's And maybe it's part of that whole, the expectations have been built so high uh, that it's not quite, uh, having the impact that maybe I thought it would based on the the expectations, but uh, Jimmy, what do you what do you think of that, uh, and how do you assess this so far? I've I've enjoyed the season. Um, I'm looking at it as this is a soft reboot, and so um, they kind of wanted to create a new because ratings have declined somewhat, not badly, but they're somewhat. Um, they wanted to create a jumping on point for new viewers and. I, I think Bill fits that well because she, more so than the Pons or Clara or Donna or Rose or any of the companions, is more of an innocent. Uh, she also, I like the fact that she has more of a sense of boundaries um, than recent companions. I mean, in several episodes, she's she said, you know, Doctor, I don't want you crossing this line. And I like that. I like seeing that from a companion. I think, in a way, Bill may be a callback to companions from the classic series because they didn't all have the drivenness that um, some of the recent companions in New Who had. You had people who were more innocent, more laid back. They were here to adventure with the Doctor, but they weren't addicted to it the way, say, Amy Pond or Clara Oswald were. Uh, in terms of comparing this to previous recent seasons of the Peter Capaldi era, so far this is, and I haven't gone back and rewatched the others, but so far this is my favorite Peter Capaldi season. Um, I really did not like his first season at all. It seemed like his doctor was stuck in permanent regeneration madness mm, in that right. season and was just being a jerk at every opportunity. I much more preferred the doctor in this season. Um, I We talked previously about how they seem to be running through a bunch of political issues and social issues this season, and that we thought they were getting a little heavy-handed about that, or at least that was my impression of, mm -hmm. of what we were thinking. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and in this episode, they hit another hot-button issue, namely the death penalty, but they did it in a way where they didn't preach. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, sure, the doctor ultimately does not execute Missy, not like we thought he would, or if he did, she'd immediately come back somehow. Um, yeah. But they treat the the executioner order with respect, and the doctor seems to understand. He's not challenging the need to use the death penalty in some circumstances, which for British television is a very significant thing. Right. I mean, I would, I would think if they were going to talk about the death penalty in a modern context, they would, as opposed to a historical drama, you know, there would be all kinds of anti-death penalty preaching, and there wasn't. And so that was an interesting turn for me. Um, I, in the interview I saw with the script editor for this season, he mentioned that it's uh, written in sort of three acts. You have the first act where Bill is getting to know the doctor, and we're finished with that now. We're now in the middle act 
which in, apparently involves the monks with the trilogy of episodes. And then there will be the final act, which he indicates is going to go in a different direction. I think you're right, Dom, that this shows a slow ramping up where you have the soft reboot. It's very innocent. It's lower key in the beginning. Now we're hitting more of the intense drama. And then obviously Moffat's going to do his best, whether he succeeds or not is another matter, but he's obviously going to do his best to finish his era with a big bang. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. So uh, folks, what do you think? Um, You know, what do you think of this season so far? What did you think of this episode? Um, You know, this is a, the episode extremists uh let us know let us know your theories uh, folks have been contributing and and, and um offering some bits on our uh, facebook page uh, we welcome your your comments and commentary there or you could uh yeah. even send us some audio feedback uh, i could try to incorporate that into the show that might be fun um so let us know um we, you can visit uh, us at uh, tridio.com t-r-i-d-e-o.com or the secrets of doctor who facebook page uh, we'll be back next week where we'll be discussing the next episode, The Pyramid at the End of the World. But uh, until then, uh, Jimmy, where can people find you online? They can find me at jimmyakin.com. And Father Corey, where can people find you? Um, website's uh, frcorey.org, and you can find me Facebook and all that stuff on frcorey Stika, last name spelled S-T-I-C-H-A. And you can find me at betnet.com, B-E-T-T-N-E-T, where you can find my social media links, and we'll have the links to everything in our show notes at tridio.com. So uh, thank you all for listening, and remember, be good without witness or reward. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those. <laughs>